Well, indeed, Christ has risen, and here we are on Resurrection Sunday to celebrate that. But actually, we celebrate that every Sunday, do we not? Because this, the foundation of our faith is grounded in the work of Christ on our behalf. And the fact that sin leads to death, but Christ leads to life is a beautiful blessing for us. So we're here today to celebrate that. And we, we, do, we do want to reflect upon it and its meaning for our lives as Christians. I want to start out with mentioning a couple things that will be immediately obvious to you. The first is that sparrows can't swim and trout can't walk and pigs can't fly. You know that because they don't have the equipment to do those things. They're not designed that way. Well, we are made in the image likeness of God. And originally we communed with God. We had fellowship with God in the garden. There was no encumbrances to our relationship with God, but because our forebears sinned, we now have been plunged into a state of rebellion and separation from God. So just as sparrows can't swim and trout can't walk, we no longer have the capacity to get to heaven. We no longer have the capacity to live lives that are honorable to the Lord unless God does something, unless God transforms us. Our lack of perfection limits us to one single earthly life, and then what? We die. Nobody would dispute that. We all die. The difference between the animal world and humanity is that they don't mourn it because they're not aware of it. But we do mourn it. We mourn our limitations as humans. We, we mourn the death that inevitably awaits us. We miss the eternal life, which was once ours, lost due to our sin. And so at the end of the day, as has often been said, the statistics on death are rather impressive. Everybody without exception, dies. And unfortunately, we also live in a world that is dominated by what we would call a Darwinian worldview, which is a lie that suggests that humanity is, you and I are merely just products of random chances. We just sort of appeared in this universe and eventually we will be extinguished. There's nothing more to this life the Darwinians would tell us than what we're experiencing in the here and now. But res the resurrection and the gospel of Jesus Christ puts perspective on all of that. It helps us to understand that there is a solution to get out of our sin problem, to deal with our death problem, to deal with our rebellion against God. It tells us that we are of infinite value, that we are made in the image and likeness of God, that God put us here for a purpose we're not the products of random chance. We're the products of divine design. And one day, because Christ has conquered the grave, and we know he has, we will be ushered into the eternal presence of God forevermore. Now, the question is, do you actually believe that? Not just up here, but do you actually believe it? Because unfortunately, I've become increasingly convinced that the majority 
of Christian people do not actually believe this. They believe it in their minds. They assent to it intellectually, cognitively. But if the last two years is any indication of the lack of hope, the fear of death that has invaded many churches and many Christians' lives, perhaps we could say that today will be one of the greatest acts of hypocrisy in the history of the Canadian church. Because thousands of people across our great land will gather in their churches and they will pay lip service to their belief in the resurrection, to their hope that there will be life beyond the grave. And yet for the last two years, many have lived in abject fear, absolutely terrified at the prospect of death, even to the point that they've been willing to disobey multiple commands within scripture in order to protect themselves from the terrifying reality of death. But folks, it's not supposed to be that way. It's not supposed to be that way. Resurrection hope needs to mean something. It should affect the way you process life, the pending reality of your own death. You see, through Christ, you know this, through Christ, eternal life is certain. There's no question about it. It's certain. So do we look forward to it? Not really, but we're not afraid of it. Fear in the face of death and Easter are literally incompatible. If you really understand what happened at Easter on Good Friday and on the Sunday that followed, fear of death needs to become, once again, foreign to our Easter worship. You know that we've been studying 1 Corinthians 15 for the last couple of weeks, and it's a great passage that addresses complex questions that are asked and answered about the resurrection. We're going to enter back into that chapter right now, and I'll introduce you first of all to verse 35. So as questions are asked about resurrection life and hope and what all that means and how that's going to happen, take place, Paul writes to the early Christians and by extension to us, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? No one disputes death. But evidently in the first century, people were asking complex questions about death. And one of the complex questions they were asking is, well, if this body has let me down and is riddled with sin, how does a resurrected body solve that? Why doesn't God just resurrect our spirits and we'll spend eternity as spirit beings, perhaps sitting on clouds and plucking on harps in the presence of God? How does the fact that our body has let us down in this life is riddled with sin, is affected by sin, the flesh draws us towards sinful ideas and inclinations. How does a new body solve that? Won't it happen again? Is it possible that when God resurrects our body that we'll just fall back into sin because we did the first time, why not the second time? People were asking questions like this. Others were perhaps asking questions like, well, I, I know to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It says that in Philippians 1.23. But frankly, why would I even want this body back? Well, unable to answer many of these questions, 
In the early church, there was some confusion. There was some ignorance circling about, and Paul wanted to address that. But as he speaks to Christian people, we also need to acknowledge that the world is asking questions surrounding the topic of death and eternal life as well. They're not always able to answer those questions either because they've not exposed themselves to God's word. They've chosen to be ignorant. Or many people, strangely and sadly, just take the perspective, well, I'm not going to think about it. Have you met folks like that? Lost people? It's like, I don't think about death. Have you ever wondered what happens in the next life? I don't care. I don't want to talk about it. It's too painful. They just try to ignore it. But again, the statistics on death are rather impressive. And so it's incumbent upon you. It's, it's necessary to think about and to try to form a biblical, God-inspired understanding of what death is and what the resurrection is all about. So while we do not applaud death, I don't want you to ever leave here thinking, you know, the Christian message is, yeah, we're looking forward to it. We want to die. No, we don't applaud death. It is the consequence of sin. Nevertheless, we don't spend all our lives shaking in our boots, terrified of death. We need to be reminded of this because, again, many Christians are terrified of death and for no reason. See, one of the blessings that come about as a result of our death is our future resurrection. God didn't create you just as a spirit and a soul. He created you body soul, spirit. And his plan in Eden and in the eternal kingdom is for you to be an embodied being. Not just a spirit, but an embodied being. This is part and parcel of a Christian worldview. So in our resurrection, here's one of the blessings of it. The old will go and the new will come. Again, canaries, sparrows, they can't swim. Physical things remain dead unless there is transformation. Unless there is some sort of radical transformation of their bodies. So in order to answer these hard questions and encourage us, God offers us a couple of analogies here. Verse 36 and following states, You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. So he's giving us an illustration from agriculture. If you've ever grown a seed into a plant or a tree or whatnot, you know what he's talking about here. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. Analogy number one here, there's a couple of them, is not intended to be super scientific. Because one, one could argue, well, this, this is an inaccurate passage. Seeds aren't dead, they're dormant. Okay, we get it. Get it. We understand that. It's not meant to be super accurate. But the analogy still works because when you pour some seeds out of a little package, they look dead, do they not? They don't look, they don't look like they're alive. They look dead. And for all purposes, they are dead. And then suddenly, you put them in the soil, you add some water, the temperature's right, and they're very much alive. So apple seeds don't start growing separate apple trees 
while they're still in the original apple. You don't have an apple tree growing out of an apple. The fruit dies for all intents and purposes. The seeds dry out, fall into the soil, are packaged and put away for the winter. And eventually a tree grows out of that little tiny seed. And if you plant an apple seed, you don't get an orange tree. And if you plant a tomato seed, you don't get asparagus. The seed produces its own body as God has designed it. Each seed produces its own body, if you will, as God has designed it. This illustration is meant to help us to understand the nature and purpose of the resurrection of these dying bodies. They must die first because of sin. And then God eventually, when they look very dead, resurrects them and they are made new in the eternal kingdom. The final death of our weakened flesh then must happen just like an apple must die. The seed must dry out. The pumpkin must die. The seed must dry out. So our bodies must die and dry out. And then God miraculously resurrects them from the grave. Again, death has to happen in the fallen order for us to experience resurrection. So again, while we don't look forward to death, it's the necessary next step to something far better. The old goes first and then the new comes as a result. Verse 39 for not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, one, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. So analogy number two reminds us that each creature has its own body, if you will. And they're not the same. There's some similarities. We're all organic beings, for example. But each creature, each living thing has its own body. That's self-evident. And so in the same way, he goes on to help us to understand that there are earthly bodies and there are heavenly bodies. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, it says in verse 40, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, for example. Another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from stars in glory. So as you look up at the sky, you might notice that there's a really, really bright star in the sky called the sun, which warms our planet and makes life possible. But there are other stars as well. Sirius A is the most bright star in the sky. In fact, it's almost twice as bright as the next brightest star in the sky. So that we see they're all various stars and planets above us, but they, they have some variation to them. They're, they're different. One is not exactly the same as the other. So he uses these illustrations to help us to think about the fact that while there are different bodies within the created order, obviously they're all eventually dying and the world must ultimately die in order for God to make a new heaven and a new earth. We, don't, we aren't designed in this life to live forever because the fall has cursed us all. Our bodies are subject to sin because of the curse. So no matter how many miles you run on the treadmill, 
you will eventually die. No matter how much you dedicate yourself to eating properly, (laughs) you will eventually die. We all will die one day. The stars will be extinguished. The fish will be extinguished. The birds will be extinguished. And we mourn that, again, because it wasn't God's original purpose. We mourn that. But we also have hope because we know that God will make all things new one day. Now, as an aside, when you study the various religions and spiritualized ideologies of the world within which we live, it is noteworthy that many religions completely overlook this reality, the curse, the effects of the fall, and would instead tell you, well, even though your body's dying, even though the world is fizzling out, we have a, an answer to that. We have a solution to that. And they use different words, and they refer to different religious texts, but it's essentially the exact same message. If you're dying, what you need to do to overcome the pending reality of your death is simply act more moral. Just be more moral, be more giving, be more charitable. Worship this way, worship that way. And they they pile on a long list of things that you're supposed to be able to do or you should do if you're going to overcome the effects of sin upon your life. And they overlook something obvious as they dump pile after pile of moral platitudes upon you. Our bodies are no longer even capable of eternal life. They aren't eternal. We are headed to the grave. It doesn't matter whether you're a Buddhist, a Muslim, a Hindu, a Christian, an atheist. What happens to everybody at the end of the day? They die. So this message of, well, if you want to overcome death, you want to overcome sin, You just need to act more moral. (laughs) It's self-evidently impossible to attain eternal life by simply being a little bit more moral. The Christian message, we have a solution to this problem. It's called a bodily resurrection that's been guaranteed and secured by the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we not only know how this all ends, but the pressure's off for us to try to attain heaven. Christ attains heaven for us. He makes a way where there is no way. The most fearful thing is not to die. The most fearful thing is to remain in these corrupt bodies. Nobody wants that. I've been living long enough. While I do enjoy many of the aspects of life and I'm thankful for it, and I know that The reason why I'm dying is because of sin. I understand all that. I don't want to stay here for another 150 years. I I want to go to be with the Lord, and I want to look forward to the physical resurrection that the Lord has secured for me. This life is challenging. These corrupt bodies that we have, they let us down all the time, do they not? We all have health issues, spiritual health issues, mental health issues emotional health issues, physical health issues. 
you know, the older you get, the more you become aware of that. Those of you that are 13 or 14, you still think you're Superman or Superwoman. But the older you get, then, you know, the aches and pains start to set in. The, the, the challenges of life begin to weigh you down, but we have hope beyond the grave. So rather than fearing death, or rather than looking forward to it in glee, thinking, oh, I just want to die, we acknowledge the reality of death, but we also know it's the necessary next step for us to enter into the eternal state and to receive our new bodies and to spend eternity on the new heaven and the new earth. Now, brother and sister, for this reason, there must be no fear of death in the Christian's life. Since we will be resurrected, fear of death is sin. It's a lack of faith. It's a lack of belief. We've joked about this many times. None of us should look forward to the method. But we needn't be afraid of death. We preach the resurrection account in scripture in order to remind ourselves, because we're so likely to slip back into fear, we don't fear cancer. We don't fear viruses. We don't fear heart attacks because we know that God has secured something for us that is eternal and it is ours yet to be fully realized, but it is ours. After giving these analogies, Paul goes on to say, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. Listen to the the contrast here. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. What is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. In, In the here and now, our bodies are still perishable. Because of our sin, they are dishonorable. Because of our sin, they are weak. But on the other side, they're imperishable. On the other side, they're raised in glory. On the other side, they're raised in power. Verse 44, it is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. So remember, he was kind of drawing that illustration between the the heavenlies, kind of the, the spiritual, the heavenly celestial realities and the earthly realities, the fish, the birds, our our human bodies. He's using this illustration to help us to understand that we have a natural body. It, It is affected and infected by sin, but eventually in the resurrection, it's going to become a spiritual body. So if there is a natural body, there also, there is also a spiritual body. And by Spiritual, by the way, he doesn't mean immaterial. Doesn't mean immaterial. But an imperishable, glorified body raised in power over sin. Super important for us to to hear that and to receive it. So the fact of the resurrection is declared to us. We're reminded of our own weakness, the challenges that we experience in this life, but that one day that will be fixed, that will be solved, that will be resolved. And the means of fixing it, solving it, and resolving it happened 2,000 years ago. So we haven't fully realized it, received it, 
But the story of history has already been written. We have the absolute assurance of eternal life. From death will come life. And so we need, we must die first in order that the old might be gone. What's the old? Again, perishable. What's the new? Imperishable. From dishonor to glory, from weakness to power. How? What's the source and guarantee of this miracle? The Lord Jesus Christ. How do we get here, by the way? How did it come about that we are now subjects of death? Well, he reminds us of biblical history. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last man, the last Adam, became a life-giving spirit. So there's a contrast here between the literal Adam of the Garden of Eden and the second Adam, who's that? Christ, born of a virgin, thereby not inheriting a sin nature. So there's a contrast between the first Adam and the second Adam, between the first man and Christ. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. So who came first, the second Adam or the first Adam? Kind of a trick question, but not really. Obviously, the first Adam came first, and the first Adam wasn't Christ. So the natural Adam came first, and then the spiritual Adam. Again, not the spiritual Adam. This is not suggesting that Christ wasn't actually embodied. You know, there's some ancient... Christian heretical groups that would say Christ wasn't actually enfleshed. He wasn't actually embodied. He was just appeared to be. No, no. He was fully God and he was fully man, fully human. You could reach out and touch him. You could shake his hand. You could pat him on the back. He was fully God and fully man. So when it says spiritual here, it's not saying immaterial, but back to those previous words I've mentioned, it means he's imperishable. He's glorified. He's He's the God of power. That's what we're looking forward to. Verse 47 makes this super clear. For the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. So how did God create Adam? He spoke everything else into existence, but when it came to Adam, he knelt down and collected up some clay and formed him. But Christ didn't come from the ground. He came from heaven. He was sent by God. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of dust. That's all of us. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Well, this is interesting. So now we have both. We are both of Adam, the first man. We we are from the dust. We are just creatures. But in Christ, we are now also from heaven. We are from the eternal son. So we are fully human. We're not fully God. We're fully human, but we have all the blessings that the one who was fully God came to offer us with his own body dying a cruel death so that he might overcome all the sins of the world. Let me read that for you again. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, so we're in the likeness of Adam, we are his sons and daughters, his descendants. That's not all we are. As Christians, it says, 
we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So the contrast is clear. The first Adam, that's us, was a living being of the earth, but he sinned, thereby cursing us all. But then there's a second Adam. He's us, he's fully human, but he's also God. And he is the life-giving spirit of heaven, thereby freeing us all from sin's ultimate consequence, death. So we bear the first Adam's image, but guess what? We also bear the second Adam's image. We are Christians, not because we tried to work off our sins by following some religion that would say that's the solution, but we have a a, a God who came into this world and accomplished something for us that we could not accomplish. So in the here and now, we live in this sort of tension. We sin, we're dying, we do bad things. In our flesh, we don't look forward to death. But because of this transactional work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, we are new creatures in Christ. We have resurrection hope. You see how rich the doctrine of the resurrection is? It's not just, oh, you're going to die and come back to life. It's all about the work of Christ transforming us, guaranteeing us our eternal salvation, accomplishing something for us that we could not. Jesus is the second Adam. He sidestepped the curse of the first Adam by being virgin born. He lived a sinless life and thereby he was not subject to natural death, but he died anyway so that he might take our curse away. And then he rose again, thereby securing our redemption. So which Adam do you want to be like? Well, if you're a Christian, you're like both. You're like both. But the curse and the effects of sin upon the first Adam will one day be eternally taken from you. Because the second Adam accomplished something that you and I were incapable of. Christ The first Adam, I should say, was incapable of self-salvation. So are we. He was incapable of personal redemption. And so are we. He conquered death. The second Adam conquered death on our behalf. And we are now like him positionally before God because he's been sacrificed in our place. The critical thing for us until we get to heaven is to learn to think like him, to stake our hope and our purpose and our outlook on death on his finished work on our behalf. Whenever you as a Christian find yourself mired in fear, lacking comfort because you found out you're sick, you were reminded in a pointed way that you are dying. We all, we're all dying. But when we get that diagnosis, we weren't expecting. That's when it's like, whoa, I'm, I'm dying. We need not fear that. We need not fear that if we understand that Christ has accomplished something for us. So we mourn death, rightly so, because it is one of the consequences of sin. But we also appreciate what comes on the other side 
of our death, our resurrection from the grave, and all the hope and healing that we will ultimately find in the eternal kingdom. Near the end of Revelation, it says there's no, there's no crying, there's no mourning, for the old order has passed away, all things have become new. But you know what? We get to live that way now because we know that's what's going to happen. A final verse I'll read you from 1 Corinthians 15, 54. When the perishable, that's this, puts on the imperishable, the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. So through the eyes of faith, we no longer see death as defeat. We see death as opportunity. We see death as victory. So I would encourage you to live today in light of the pending reality of your own resurrection if you know the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you haven't come to put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can solve your hopeless state and your lost condition by trusting in him and surrendering your life to him right now by repenting of your sin and repenting of the notion that you might have that you can work your way out of your problem. You need to repent of that as well and put your faith in Christ and his resurrection life alone for your eternal hope and healing. So let's pray to that end and let's continue to celebrate then the fascinating and fabulous work of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. 